back to Sports and Society. We're here on April 28th. How you doing today, Kyle? Yeah, not too bad. I'm uh, looking to looking forward to talking about some running today, which is I don't I don't think we've ever had a full episode dedicated to running before. Well, ironically, when you were out a couple of weeks ago, we did an episode with a guy here, a buddy of mine, talking about ultra running. So we have done, has been on the podcast. We've not had your perspective on it, I suppose. That's cool. Yeah, just leave me out. Thanks, man. You know, I mean, when, you, when you're trying to get engaged or some shit, you know. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, I need to listen to it. I haven't listened to it. Oh, my goodness. Don't admit that on the air, Carl. So come on now. <laughs> um, what did you pay attention to this week? All right, so I gave you a warning. I'm going to do a real quick rundown of some minor sports stuff because that's what captivated me this past week. And I'll start off with the simplest one, which is, I don't know why, but I have been obsessed with disc golf coverage on YouTube this week. Um, there is some really professionalized disc golf coverage, and I'm just wondering what it means for the sport to have professionalized coverage in that way. Um, so that's one. Uh, two, I've got... Ronnie O'Sullivan lost in the Snooker World Championships. Did you see this? I saw that it was a story. I didn't pay attention to it, yeah. So Ronnie O'Sullivan is widely considered perhaps the greatest snooker player of all time. He's mercurial, and he's all over the place, but he was a 1-50 to favorite to win beforehand, and he lost to a 500-to-1 outsider, the first amateur ever to make it to the world championships and he lost in the first round um, Whoa. just kind of staggering moment there and it kind of just shattered everybody's expectation of what's going to happen in that tournament um so that, they say why he lost he says he was sick uh during it which mm-hmm. i believe but at the same time it's still yeah to lose that is just unbelievable mm-hmm um, all right, third, uh, there's a big chess tournament going on right now, the Grinky Classic. Uh, and Magnus Carlsen had a fascinating match against Vichy Anand earlier this week that ended in a draw. Uh, what was perhaps noteworthy about it was that Carlsen, I think, had won seven matches in a row, which is quite a running streak in the modern chess world. And uh, he had a move to put him in a winning position, and he missed it, which was one of the first times in recent memory, that he did not see the move uh, to win the match. So it's just fascinating to see kind of that uh, that loss. And then they sat at the table for about 10 minutes afterwards chatting about the different moves and how things could have played out differently. Just to, I don't know what it was, but it captivated me, and I spent way too much time watching coverage of it. What did Magnus have to say about it? Uh, I have not seen Magnus's comments. Anon talked about how he saw it. Uh, and knew that he had missed it, um, which is interesting. And it's interesting because Anand is very well respected. Anand does not play the psychological games that some of the other folks do, so which makes the like kind of conversation between them so fascinating of Carlson trying to figure out where it went wrong. And uh, of course, for like normal chess players, there was nothing there. The move was literally moving his king which was not under threat at all, one space to the side on the back um, the back row to allow for a, like a move, six moves in the future for his uh, bishop right. to be in that space, which is just no one else would have seen that. Right. Uh, like There's a there's hundred people in the world that just looking at the board could see that. It's fascinating. Right. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, and then last but not least, uh, cycling had their Amstel Gold, which is the biggest one-day classic in the Netherlands yesterday or uh, last week. And a lot of folks are considering it the greatest ending to a cycling race in history, essentially. Um, that Matthew Vanderpool um, was a, over a minute down with four or five kilometers left in the race and won the race. Um, wow. And it was a combination of the guys up front playing cat and mouse, but also Vanderpool putting down power that no one else could see. And so like, he started his sprint with 600 meters left and still overpowered everybody after putting in all that work for 4 or 5K to, to drag a group of eight folks with them all the way back up to the leaders. Just an absolutely incredible 
You've got Lance Armstrong apparently jumping out of his seat while watching it and people in airports <laughs> yelling and just incredible scenes. That makes me think I haven't checked in with Lance Armstrong's podcast in a while. It's I have to give it to him. The guy is a compelling listen no matter what you think about him. Yeah, he's a good talker. He can he can make me believe in things and I like afterwards I'm like, "Wait, do I believe in that?" I mean, it's it's the truth that it tells you what, how everything else happened with him. It just yeah, you know, makes you believe how we wound up in the situation we did. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he literally made a career of convincing people of things that weren't true. It's <laughs> probably no surprise that his uh, podcast does the same. Uh, uh, well, what uh, what had your attention this past week? Well, I wanted to hit back to that disc golf thing a little bit more. Uh, that caught my attention. What What's the deal with that? So um, they have this one particular, there's several YouTube channels that provide coverage for disc golf. But in particular, there's one that has really, really high production values and releases um, commentated over rounds the day after major tournaments uh, major rounds so like they had there's a big tournament this past week that ended yesterday and now the next day on each coverage you can see super professionalized hour-long videos showing every shot from the lead card on that tournament which is just a really uh a really compelling way and just a very pleasant way to watch it and it's also like it makes me as someone who doesn't particularly care just want to sit down and enjoy what I'm watching which is uh, I don't it's always interesting how, what gets your attention and what gets you into something like that right it makes me wonder if uh Ken Klimo is still a name in the disc golf world do you remember that guy I do not no that would be interesting to do, maybe like a, a history deep dive or something at some point in time, uh, doing like a podcast about something from uh, something that we feel got bypassed. But uh, I have no idea what this actual statistics are, but uh, Ken Klimo won like 11 world championships in a row. Uh, and it, it the immediate interesting question is like, wait a minute okay like surely like a lot of people around the world play disc golf what was it that ken klimo was doing that was so much better uh and then even in a sport that i guess it's probably like anything else of like the margins are small once you get to a high level but what was he doing that no one else was doing um hmm. but yeah i just I, I played a lot of disc golf in high school and i the only like discs you could buy were uh discs sponsored by ken Klimo, <laughs> so he was like the one name of disc golf that got out into the world and so it just always fascinated me to and i i, I wonder what he's up to now <laughs> if he's still winning tournaments so he is not i'm looking up his stuff here uh as recently as a few years ago he was winning tournaments so he won at least one tournament in 2015 here it looks like um but uh, well, in 2016 as well but it's interesting here looking at this so he he has played 456 career events, uh, and I'm going to ask you to guess how many career wins he has in those 456 events. 300. 223. Wow. So a strike rate of just south of 50%. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, that just immediately makes me fascinated, and I know I'm going to do a Wikipedia deep dive here later, but... Um, who was in second all those years? Well, it is fascinating. I'm now looking up um, the guy who is the most uh, prolific and best player right now, who's a gentleman named Paul Macbeth. And so his stats are similar in some ways. Not as good, but 315 career events with 116 wins. Um, but it's much more competitive now. And there's like 10 guys that everybody knows their names on the tour. Yeah. Um, also staggering. This, these guys are making decent money. Like, so he, uh, Macbeth here has made career earnings of $434,000. Well, yeah, he made, let's see, in 2018, he made, uh, so this is not a staggering amount of money, but made $57,000, not including sponsorships and tournament earnings. 
Um, which you just, I don't know that I would have anticipated that kind of money in this board. Yeah, it also makes me wonder if they have other jobs or if they just do this. Well, I was wondering about that as well, because especially, you know, some of them must, but these top-end guys, like, uh, I got to think that that's all they do. Especially because, like, this tournament that I was watching this past week was a Wednesday to Saturday thing. So who can work? Like, who <laughs> right. can travel and go to that tournament? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, you've been paying attention to golf, haven't you? Yeah, to some extent. Actually, I think what's interesting is that I wasn't paying significant attention, but I was paying attention enough to be watching yesterday in the Trophy Hassan the second tournament is happening in Morocco. And a a moment caught my eye and I got really interested really quickly, but it was uh David Lipsky, an American. Uh, which always interests me in the sense of like I- I'm interested in the path that an American would take to arrive on the European tour. Hmm. And I always find that interesting. And so I always, when I see an American doing well in the European tour, I, I look up their path and how they got to the Euro tour. But uh, David Lipsky is interesting. Um, he is Korean American, but he's also Jewish. And uh, his parents left Korea during the Korean War, and he grew up in L.A. Uh, At any rate, that's just kind of an ancillary context-giving fact. But uh, what caught my eye was that he had pulled his drive left on a hole, and he was having to hook his ball around some Roman columns. (laughs) And I was like, this is weird. What is going on? Did they really build a golf course on what potentially could have been a world heritage site and then i I, so i started to dig in a little bit and it turns out that it's a robert trent jones course uh that was commissioned by king hassan who uh essentially was a avid golfer but is more known for his notorious human rights record which is pretty deplorable uh but he loved golf and so he had robert trent jones build him three golf courses Hmm. uh and that the European tour is playing on this course that uh, was built by a king in Morocco is fascinating for so many reasons. Uh, And I guess that's the point of like within this story, there were like 12 threads you could follow and all of them were interesting to me from kind of a geopolitical standpoint, from the purely economic standpoint, from the geography standpoint. But it turns out that, uh, Hassan had asked uh, Robert Trent Jones to ship in Roman columns from a World Heritage site. And it's just like, this is so bizarre. And so <laughs> I, I, I could talk about it for a really long time, I think. But I guess I just wanted to point out that, um, you know, uh, we, we spend so much time uh, talking about sports, you and I do. And I think what we are always pursuing is just a deeper understanding of what is compelling and what is interesting and what is OK. And uh, that story um, for me, like seeing those Roman columns and then following the story of, OK, how did we get to this singular moment where David Lipsky was hitting this shot around some Roman columns and. If you ask that kind of question, uh, you kind of get into some really fascinating stuff. That is, yeah. I don't know why, but I'm stuck on this Robert Trent Jones thing. The fact that he could have anybody and he went to this American course designer who has sets up very traditionally American-style courses, which is interesting to me. I'm wondering, right. like, is the rest of the course design what I would expect to see around Myrtle Beach area? It is. Um, it, it looks exactly like a Myrtle Beach course. I, it does. That's a perfect example. Uh, yeah. And it, it's known um, the course that they play the tournament on is one of the hardest courses in the world, uh, depending on how they set it up. But uh, yeah, and it was also, I, it's probably way too strong of a correlation to make, but uh, Sean Crocker, who was also an American, is in the lead. I haven't looked to see how he's doing this morning, but he was in the lead after yesterday. I was like, I wonder if there's any correlation there of an American who's probably played 50 Robert Trent Jones courses um, and maybe just seeing it differently or something. I don't know. Yeah, that's, wow. 
There's so much to unpack with that. You're right. Yeah. And I, I'm also taken to this whole, um, I remember the whole thing when, with the Olympics and they built this course in Rio and it was a brand new course. And just this whole idea of making courses work and not like the traditional, I suppose would have been that you find a piece of land that works for a course and you build around that, but that's not the way the course goes these days. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Like those first courses were, uh, integral to the land itself. Uh, the land guided how the course, uh, was built and how the game was played. Uh, and it's become the complete opposite in some ways. I think you could say, Hmm. yeah well we we look forward to this podcast being so successful that we can build our own golf course and yeah right uh, pay all (laughs) the world's best players several million dollars to come play a showcase tournament here oh that's funny it's funny to think about what kind of course we would design I'm thinking it would definitely be a par three course. So. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. We would just make it fun, as fun as possible. <laughs> oh, my. Well, shall we talk about our article for the week? Yeah. What, what's uh, what's going on with Mo Farah these days? So this is a weird story. And we'll start by saying that uh, a lot of this comes in the shadow and the precursor m- moments before the London Marathon, which was run this morning. Mo Farah coming fifth in a really good time for him, around about the two-hour, five-minute, two-hour, a uh, little over um, range. But he was just totally destroyed by Kipchoge, fourth, who's had his fourth win in London, two minutes or two hours, two minutes, thirty-seven seconds, the second fastest time in history behind his own world record of two hours, one minute and 39 in Berlin. And if you don't know, Berlin is where all the world records get set. So the fact that he would get that close in London is pretty staggering um, to me. Also worth noting before we get too deep into this, I just wanted to give a shout out to London for replacing their single-use cups for runners with seaweed capsules to do um, hydration stuff and get water to folks. Really interesting uh, sustainability mm-hmm. move, but... So what happened this week was apparently un, uh, unprompted at a uh, press conference earlier this week. Mo Farah claimed, uh, essentially raised his hand and claimed that things had been stolen from his hotel room while he was training in Ethiopia at a resort uh, owned at least in part by Haile Gebrselassie, the most famous uh, of Ethiopian marathoners and runners. Um he re- revealed that he reached out to Gabriel Selassie for assistance and was disappointed to get no assistance. Several thousand dollars had been stolen from him along with a watch and several other things. He seemed genuinely furious, not really looking for PR help on this. Um, Gabriel Selassie then responded saying that Pharaoh had been totally unprofessional in his time there, had not paid his bill, um, and even going on to do the biggest attack, which seemed to be saying that Pharaoh had... Uh, unprovokedly attacked a husband and wife, uh, punching the wife. Uh, this seems to be totally at odds with Farah's uh, allegations. Um, several other athletes there that seem to support Farah's statement, saying that he was feeling threatened, uh, and indeed that the wife came at him with some barbells, which sounds rather terrifying. Um, I have to comment that as uh, serious as some of this stuff is, it's also hilarious to think about these skinny-ass people uh, yeah. fighting each other. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, but also, interestingly, that um, Gabriel Selassie has claimed that the friction between the two men dates back to 2016 when Farah wanted to bring uh, a coach, Jama Aiden, who has been brought up under suspicion of doping offenses, uh, to their training camp in Ethiopia, and um, Gabriel Selassie would not allow him to come to his hotel in Ethiopia, and that's what he claims this thing is started by. So now we've got doping allegations thrown into things. It's just got a little bit of everything. Do you think I, I, there's there's a lot of ways to go with this? Um, What it reeks of to me in the first place, I think, is the doping stuff that uh, similar to cycling and what we've talked a lot about before is how odd 
the cultures are within endurance sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, so we're talking about running and cycling primarily, but uh, the, the, I don't know. There, there is something really fishy to me uh, insofar as whenever there is a headline in endurance sports, doping always seems to be lingering around. And I feel like you can take that two ways. One is that it's because it's always there. Uh, secondly, is that it's like an easy thing to latch on to, to make mm. stories more juicy and dramatic in endurance sports. Um, but I, I find that, I don't know, I, I don't have data on it, but it, it would be interesting to see that when a story becomes a story in endurance sports, it's because doping is always right there at the surface. I don't know if that strikes you at all. It does. And I think the other thing that goes along with this to kind of build on that in some ways is I just want to take a moment. And for those of you who don't know, these are both icons in the sport and in their countries in particular. Gabriel Selassie is, you know, about the biggest thing happening in Ethiopia these days, even though he's past his prime and hasn't really been in the competitive world for a while. Um, he's head of their athletic federation. Mm-hmm. And so it's... Yeah. Uh, it, but Ethiopia does not have the greatest reputation in this. I, it's an interesting situation where I really, I've had some good friends that have been Ethiopians and I want to support them. And yet they have a track record of being dirty, both in like how they run races, but also um, some really sketchy stuff. And so when it comes down to this, in some ways, like there's this kind of pale of like, uh, it would be very easy for me to believe that Ethiopia is running a similar type doping circle to what the Russians were doing. And I'm not going to sit here and say that I know that, but that's some of the stuff that seems to happen in some ways in that kind of world and the way that they put pressure on those athletes in that country. Yeah, indeed. And I, you know, we would have to talk and I, uh, about the, um, I don't know how best to say it other than just like the socioeconomic dynamics here are a an important part of this mm-hmm. in that uh, Ethiopia, an extremely poor country for the most part, uh, and one of their most famous global exports are their runners. And so it is probably quite often that when we hear about Ethiopia in international news, uh, it's either some sort of political drama or some sort of running drama. Uh, and so it's something that sits right at the precipice of what defines Ethiopia and kind of the international consciousness. And so I think that is an important piece. Uh, and I think it becomes even more important to put like some factual information behind it that gives such context to it is that the there was a hotel employee that was accused of the crime of stealing from him and she was detained for 16 days. So she spent 16 days in prison. She was exonerated of any accusations. But nonetheless, reading that she makes 50 pounds a month, uh, I feel like that's a striking fact of like, okay, what are we talking about? We're talking about a a woman that works at Holly's um, apparently kind of like running compound or athletic compound, making 50 pounds uh, a month and... I, we don't have enough information, I think, to talk about like how and why he pays his employees the way we do. Like, I don't know if we can go into that conversation at all, but we can point out that uh, there is a really, really stark contrast to the world in which these professional athletes live in once they get out of their extremely poor environments in which they come from. Uh, probably in some ways even more exponentially different than what we experience in the United States of a lot of athletes coming from poor backgrounds. But this is probably at a level that doesn't even match what we can conjure here in the U.S. No, I think about, you know, I compare it to the IPL stuff that we talked about a few weeks ago in terms of I think that there's an argument to be made. Um, in Ethiopia, let's not, let's not paint this as bad as it could be. Ethiopia is actually a fairly developed country. They're not, um, you know, we're not talking about uh, the Congo in some ways. Right. This is, this right. is um, a much better situation than many places in Africa. Yet, there's a real argument to be made that running is the only meritocracy in that place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that's the only way that you can use 
your own skills as the way to get to the top of the heap, mm-hmm. um, which is, I think, a really interesting thing that we just can't fathom in our mindset is just the the struggles there. And I do think, you know, it, it's also worth noting the, the strangest to some of the other situation that apparently, you know, the people that witnessed this fight, there was a New Zealander and a, a North African runner. And so why there's this culture of going to this Ethiopian compound to train is I, I'm really would love to know what makes that so unique. And apparently both of those folks said that they've had things stolen from their rooms in the past. So it uh, appears to in some ways just be an expectation that when you go there, this happens. Although Farah is such a, a, a superstar that maybe he didn't feel like he should be subject to the same thing that these other lesser um, superstars are, are dealing with. So I, it's just such a fascinating thing. Like if we know that Gabriel Selassie and Farah haven't liked each other since 2016, which I doubt that uh, Farah's ever really cared for Ethiopia or Ethiopians, uh, but he still feels like that's the best place for him to go train. That's a really fascinating dynamic as well. Yeah. And it, so think, the piece about Mo, Mo being such an international celebrity and superstar, I feel like is a part of this in that how the story got out and how the story is being uh, kind of distributed to the sports watching world is interesting to me in that uh, I, as far as I understand, the first way it broke is he made a video on Twitter and Instagram showing like his empty suitcase uh, and a, with a very suggestive um, caption underneath, essentially uh, accusing Haley of having something to do with this. Uh, and and so it's like, wow, that's interesting. Like, that you would be robbed and your first thought is, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a Twitter video about being robbed. Uh, and similarly, it's interesting that uh, The Guardian picked up the story, which I, I'm not hating on The Guardian at all for picking it up, but it's also a story that is massive in the tabloids. Uh, and so reading that um, this Mo for our story is front page and back page, implying that it's it's a front page news story that the tabloids are even more excited about. Uh, and so how the story is getting out there is interesting to me on this one. Well, it is particularly, I think, this is uh, brought to light this week in particular in my mind because uh, I was, you know, I get a lot of my news source. I read the the Guardian and the Daily Mail just about every day as much as I hate to admit that I read the mail. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yet I went on Twitter on Wednesday or Thursday and lo and behold, Twitter is blowing up with these allegations that William has cheated and yada, 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 all this stuff. And I'm like, how is this not in the tabloids, but it's on, um, uh, but it's on Twitter and all this stuff. And so this, this fascinating discussion of what goes in those UK tabloids, because it is a very unique situation in some ways that they, they feed on a certain type of thing. And yet there's also an etiquette and a, and a way that it's done that, uh, just continues to baffle me. Hmm. Yeah, and it's something I have never fully understood of what the difference would be to what British athletes face in regards to that as uh, Americans' athletes face. Uh, and I wonder if it's really all that different because I feel like the UK tabloids have a, their own identity, and I don't know if it's any different than our tabloids. I don't know if you know anything about that i don't know i guess i just look at it from i feel like we look down on our tabloids in a way that maybe is not the same in the uk i mean i guess the thing about russell westbrook who we were mentioned in another context here but um you know he's kind of refused to answer media questions for the past month and it's driven people crazy um and yet it's there's not been the same up well, I don't think we're, the criticism of him that we're seeing reaches that level that we see with the uh, English cricket team when they're struggling. I think you know, back in the day when Kevin Peterson was just like every week and raked over, uh, raked over the coals um, for stuff that may or may not be true. And here we have Russell Westbrook, who's being an ass in my mind and refusing to comment on anything and knowing that, and yet we don't. Uh, there's not the same outpouring of just animosity in the same way there is with those tabloids, those British tabloids. 
Right. And that, and so that makes me think about when England's at the Cricket World Cup or at the Soccer World Cup and how I feel like I read a story every World Cup about how when England doesn't do well, it's because of the tabloids. Mm-hmm. In that, who's really to blame for the English national team not playing well in cricket and soccer other than those that are obsessed with and reading the tabloids and then also those that make the tabloids possible financially. And so I I guess I'm pulling on that that is maybe always a story I come across every every World Cup. But yeah, this thing with Russell Westbrook is kind of connected, I think, isn't it? I, I think so. You know, I think it's it's really worth pointing out in some ways who these athletes are. And so I do, before we get to Russell, I do want to say that just for those of you that don't know, I kind of compare it to this whole shit show with Magic Johnson that went down recently times like five. Um, the Magic is like the closest thing we have to an icon in the NBA to do something this humanizing um I mean, it would be what, like Jordan doing what Magic Johnson did, essentially. What did he do exactly? Uh, where he quits being the general manager of the Lakers without telling the ownership first and does it in a press conference in a hallway and has this amazing meme where he's like, I've been sitting in these meetings where they've been like, this is what we're going to do next year. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to be here. Yeah. Like, what is going on, Magic? <laughs> I feel like I saw a headline that said it it was somewhat spurred along by um uh accidental reply all which if oh. that's the case that makes it even more enjoyable. <laughs> uh. well, he's sitting there like he's in the hallway and they're like, "Wait, you haven't told Jeannie Buss about this?" and he's like, yeah. "No, I just we're too close to a friend. I couldn't tell her in person." I was like, "What? What are you doing? What's happening?" Yeah. There's something about the idea of Magic Johnson accidentally replying all to something <laughs> and saying something uh, really awful in that reply all and then immediately going out in the hallway and being like, give me a television camera. I'm retiring. <laughs> oh my. But that, that that level of these icons being embroiled in some really petty nonsense is just, I, I don't think we have a frame of reference for it. Right, right. So... Uh... But it is, yeah. The Russell Westbrook thing in terms of the fires that burn in these athletes is just really fascinating. I think about, you know, Kipchoge is winning uh, one today. And by all accounts, there's nobody that really hates him. Even Farah afterwards was really complimentary. And, you know, Kipchoge had this two-minute thing or two-hour thing last year, which if you haven't looked it up is really fascinating. They tried to break two hours, but they did it with – two of these other like world-class runners running pace for him over again. And you just can't do that if you're not a certain kind of person that has a certain kind of respect in the sport, which is just different than Farrah, who seems to thrive in some ways on the... Like, why would he bring this up right before this race in some ways? I just don't... It's a different mindset. Right. Yeah, and two, two things come to mind for me on that is, uh, isn't it true that Kipchoge's known for living an extremely frugal life? Uh, that he lives in like the same house he lived in before he became a famous runner. And mm-hmm. I feel like I've seen like three or four headlines over the years that uh, one thing that he does is that he still cleans his house, that he doesn't have help. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I, that's kind of the, always the image I've had of him. You know, it's one of those things, who knows how true that is. But uh, nonetheless, it seems to have been the image that he can put out into the world and people buy it for the most part and then the second thing with Farah is uh, in this May I'm like bringing bias of having paid attention to endurance sports and these doping scandals for so long but uh, this activity and this behavior just reeks of (laughs) wrongdoing or just being up to something Uh, and so it, it seems to the other data point I would throw in there, and it's an interesting piece, especially in the running world, is his age, and uh, that he's 36 now, which necessarily isn't that old for a marathoner. Like, it's still possible to win marathons at 36, uh, as compared to other sports where 36, you're kind of definitely on the way out. But nonetheless, just acting weird late in your career when you're starting to fall off the pace for the first time in your life just for a little bit. 
uh, and you start having weird things happen in your life, it's just all the alarms are, are starting to sound for me. Interesting. I guess I, it doesn't necessarily ring of wrongdoing for me. And I, I think there's some, you know, I think there's some shadiness between these folks and there's probably, uh, it, you know, Farah has not been immune from some allegations in the past and I would not be surprised if there's something there. What interests me more on some level is just the pure pettiness of it. Yeah. Um, and then particularly in mindset of how that age thing, which I think about, you know, I was watching, um, the Raptors 76ers game yesterday and just thinking about Danny Green who's this mm-hmm. guy that's been in the league forever I don't know how old he is he's probably 33 34 and yet you to think about that guy who just comes in does his work you know the professionalism that he brings to that job versus these guys that are coming in out of college and how quickly you grow up in the NBA and so like, you can yeah. be 27 years old and an eight-year veteran and like you're just you've learned and lived a lot of life in that time in a way that I find really fascinating and just the the sense that like I I feel fairly confident that Danny Green is more professional than most 33 year old or 30 year old people man I think that is so true I I am often struck by when I hear a professional athlete talk and how my mind subconsciously attaches an age to them and how off my age often is of what I think they really are and I think it's so true that when you grow up in that limelight and when you are forced to be like a professional of professionals to do well in a sport like the NBA that would necessitate so much discipline and uh, so much keeping things straight in your life so that you can play well every night uh, that uh, they really do kind of take on a, a a version of their age that is in contrast to the norms of the society around them. I, I find that to be very true and fascinating. Yeah, it's a great point. Uh, yeah, that age, that age thing is to see this. I mean, like any thirty-six-year-old person. Like, I mean, you and I. What, I, I don't forget how old I am at this point, but getting to that age, and just to think about us. Like, if I were to call you up and be like, "You would not believe it. This asshole at work um, stole right. my coffee creamer." Right, and, right. Like, it's just, yeah. I just. It can. I think it can age you, but it can also infantile you at the same time. Infantilize, whatever that word is. And that's how I feel about like your first outlet for your story is Twitter. I'm like, what? There's four thousand other ways you could have handled this. Uh, yeah, that part of it is. I think that's the alarms to me of like, what do you? What's going on in your life that made you think this was a good idea? When it's strike, it goes back to the Westbrook comparison in some ways. You know, we saw Westbrook underperform this past week in their series against the Blazers, and he tried to compensate for that by making it personal in some ways against Lillard. And Lillard was you know, has this great interview where he talks yeah. about beating these MFers, which is just amazing. There um, are like fourteen amazing quotes in that article, <laughs> like really, really incredible. Um, but then on the flip side, you've got. He's, his whole thing is like, I'm not going to feed into it. Like, I don't need to match Russ shot for shot. I need us to win. And right. Russ, I feel like, is making it. I need to be, I need to match him uh, right. in order to prove to myself that I am who I am, which is, I think you start to see that. I think that's partly just who Russ is. And it makes me wonder, like, is there a timeline for that? And yet, right. at the same time, some of the greatest of all i mean like i think you and i resonate with the folks like kipchoge who don't need that like they have an internal fire that burns that pushes them on and you know we also see that somebody like jordan like there's a great story about kobe i forget who it was that was in the gym um, but somebody went into the gym their rookie year a guy that's now like a top 20 player and they were just getting up shots and kobe was in there when they got in and so they just kept shooting and kept shooting and kobe just was there and he kept shooting and kept shooting and then this guy finally shut it down after like two and a half hours and he sat there and just watched Kobe go for another hour. Yeah. Um, and then like after the game, the guy was like, dude, and he's like, why were you doing that? It's game day. And he's like, cause you were there and I needed to show you that I will always outwork you no matter <laughs> what. 
Oh, I was man. Like, that's yeah. like, I wasn't going to do it, but you were there, so I had to do it because that's what I, <laughs> I need to psychologically always have that on you. And yeah. then tell you afterwards that I will always psychologically have that on you. Yeah. Um, like, it's just, that's the same way Jordan was, too, though, I think. Just that ultra, like, we're going to, I'm going to use whatever I have to fuel me past you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to beat you at everything. Yeah. Whether it's cards on the plane or yeah. the basketball court or whether, yeah, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. What a bizarre existence. <laughs> Makes me really happy to not live in that space. I know, and that that was my response uh, when you sent the Russell Westbrook, uh, Damian Lillard thing to me. Of uh, I think I told you, but my they, these guys are asked questions and forced into spaces where they have to respond to things going on in their lives that so few of human beings have to entertain. And that that strikes me sometimes. Of I just think of uh, what what is the human experience for a, mm. a top level professional athlete, and then am reminded of oh, it is extremely different than the rest of us. And yet, what is interesting then to me is we use these icons to kind of define our experience, uh, and we kind of subconsciously, I think, uh, as a culture, situate ourselves in our daily lives based on what we see icons saying and doing, and yet they're living in a completely bizarre existence that has nothing to do whatsoever with how we're living our lives in a lot of ways. Um, <clears throat> and so, I don't know. That just what was struck uh, struck me and both of these stories we're talking about. Well, that's that is that takes me back in some ways to um, a Lance Armstrong podcast because I think one of the reasons we love listening to athletes talk about it is we hope that they can share some of that insight and show us how their lives are different so we can contextualize some of what we're seeing. Right. Um, and one of the things that I've found so fascinating is that, you know Sagan Peter Sagan has not had a terrific spring season and hasn't really been the same in about 18 months to what he was at his peak. Um, and Lance is the first to point out that he went through a divorce in that time mm. and that like, you just can't maintain your level of performance through those personal struggles. And yet uh, we're never going to ask him, there's never going to be an interview question. That's like, Hey, uh, you know, what, how has the divorce affected your ability to train and your ability to focus and all that stuff? Right. Um, and it, your drive. And so the same thing with somebody like Westbrook, you know, I, we don't know what his right personal life is. You know, the ESPN just ran a fascinating, heart-wrenching story about a guy who was just celebrating, I forget his name, an NBA player who was just celebrating one of Washington Wizards like community impact award and stuff like this. But there's also suspicion that he um, murdered his girlfriend or had his girlfriend murdered a long time ago when he was playing in the NBA. And there's this story about him on the team playing after an NBA finals game, just sitting quietly kind mm -hmm. of looking distraught by himself. And you're just like, you never know what's going on right. outside the court for these guys. Yeah. Gosh, that's heavy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So. Well, I feel like this uh, Mo Farah story is uh, nowhere near finished. No, absolutely not. You've got to think there's video somewhere of something happening. And yeah, it's just yeah. Uh, they both act like people who have things to hide, which is makes yep. me think that there's things coming out. Absolutely. Yep. But what are you going to pay attention to this coming week? I'm excited for the Champions League semifinals. Uh, to be honest, I, I have only kind of paid attention so far in the tournament, but uh, this Final Four is interesting, partly because it's just kind of weird. Uh, so so Tottenham uh, Ajax is a weird semifinal, and then Liverpool-Barcelona, I guess, is a little bit more predictable. Uh, but nonetheless... Uh, I think you said it best uh, earlier, but it, it would be uh, really confusing if Barcelona didn't come out of this Final Four. Uh, but nonetheless, I, I, I am most interested in seeing how 
Liverpool holds up against Barcelona hmm. and how their style of play works against Barcelona. And then with Jurgen Klopp, known as this great motivator, uh, potentially pushing pushing Liverpool to a level that could be high enough to beat Barcelona. Uh, those things I think I'll, I'll be watching for most closely. But yeah, I, it's it's hard to imagine a, a Liverpool Ajax final. <laughs> that would be so. Even Tottenham in the final would be weird too. Well, it's. I have to say, I'm super into the Ajax story. That I'm really fascinated and hope they can pull that out and. The way that they've been playing and the team that they have is just really compelling to me. Yeah. Um, I hate Tottenham, so I hope they get crushed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, watching this battle for the final places in the top four in the Premier League is the most painful thing ever in some ways. Yeah. Nobody seems to want it. Yeah. Arsenal just got crushed this morning. I couldn't watch it. I've watched like 30 minutes. I was like, nope, not going to do that to myself today. Um Weren't they playing Leicester this morning? Yep, lost 2-0. Uh, oh, wow. Oh, man. Sorry. Oh, it's all whatever. It is what it is. Yeah. Um, but I am that uh, – I'm also – you know, to go back to that similar conversation that what we were just having, you know, I think Lionel Messi is uh, – there was a time when we thought he was kind of – you know, he, he had peaked. And I think we're seeing that he is as good as he's ever been this season. I think that's partly because he had some of those – personal issues he's had some of that tax evasion stuff mm-hmm. and he's now put it behind him and i think he's playing the best he's ever played in some ways watching him in the last round he seemed to be have an energy that was just phenomenal and you know it struck me like when i compare him to ronaldo like ronaldo obviously phenomenal but messi has an industry to him when he's at his peak that is just a joy to behold and the touch that he brings and the way he wants the ball in those cases is just amazing. It really is. It, it, it it's it's hard to talk about things that like five billion people are paying attention to, and that five billion people agree on that like Messi is great. <laughs> but it it that's worth pointing out, right? Gosh, it it, it is so exceptional. It, it it's so rare, and it's it's so hard to fathom that one individual one individual can be so much better than everyone else that plays this game which is the most popular game on the planet that that there even exists someone that can do it better than everyone else is is such a fascinating concept yeah i mean it's when you watch him he's just doing things that no one else can do yeah and like i have to say that's why he'll always have the edge for me on ronaldo because ronaldo does incredible things but everything i'm doing you're like you're doing what everybody else is doing you're just doing it better whereas right. ronaldo i'm like you're nobody else can do that thing that right you're doing. Um, that yeah. made me think of this is kind of an aside but uh neymar was hosting a futsal tournament hmm. and i was just watching some clips on of it on youtube and uh he he and some of his friends uh, that aren't professional soccer players, just friends of his that play soccer, play against the winning team after the team mm-hmm. has won the tournament. And you, so you watch all like you know ten minutes of clips of the tournament and this winning team. By the end, you're like, gosh, those guys are incredible soccer players. And then Neymar goes out there and he's like at like sixty percent. And he's twice as good as everyone on that winning team. <laughs> and these are guys that play futsal for a profession. That's like what they do. That's how they make their money. And Neymar just was like making them look silly. And I was like, that that's what it is. That's what that greatness is. Of like mm-hmm. they really are at another level. But what about you? What are you gonna pay attention to? Uh, I'm going to celebrate that the NFL draft is over and hopefully we can stop talking about what is arguably the worst meat market in, in the world right now. Seriously. Um, so hopefully that will allow the sports world to really focus on what I think could be some really compelling second round NBA playoff matchups. I'm particularly interested in the East where last yesterday we saw the Raptors and the 76ers play game one. That's going to be a fascinating thing where if Joel Embiid can go uh, it'll be fascinating to see. I think the the 76ers maybe have a chance, even though the Raptors, I think, are a far better team. But you're still playing with this dilemma of we really have no idea whether Kawhi has any interest in playing for the Raptors next year or not, which is a really fascinating extra layer to put on that. And then on top of that, you've got 
the Bucks versus the Celtics, where you've got the Celtics who are, I think, unarguably the most talented team in the East, but haven't been able to put it together, versus the Bucks who just figured out how to play to their max and have a superstar who is rising to it as well. And so you've got this mix of individuals versus team there that I think is uh, uh, has the potential to be really compelling. Yeah, I think that's the story of the NBA playoffs for me right now is individuals versus team. Uh, that the names that exist on some of these teams are so massively well-known, and for good reason. They're incredible players, but... Some of these other teams that uh, maybe don't have the name recognition but are still accomplishing great things is pretty cool. But nonetheless, the NBA, at this point in the season, these teams that are in there are just stacked with talent. Uh, It makes for really fun watching, I think. Well, it is. And I mean, you think about it. I'm intrigued, too. Uh, The Western Conference doesn't interest me as much as I know I'm supposed to care about these Rockets. Warriors, but really all I care about is the Warriors winning. I just hate this freaking Rockets team. Yeah. Um, uh, so that is that. But I'm really intrigued that there's the potential, I think, if the Warriors win it this year and Durant keeps playing at the level he's playing at right now, there's going to be a real argument to be made that he is like significantly the best player on the planet beyond LeBron at this point. The way he's played in that Clippers series, even though the Warriors struggled a little bit, like he was just amazing. The things he did in that game six closeout were just unbelievable in a way that nobody else can do those things that he was doing. Yeah, and I, I loved the Clippers players in that press conference. Oh, that's, such a That's one of my all-time favorite press conference moments of the reporter asking, like, what could you have done differently to stop Kevin Durant scoring 50 points? <laughs> They're like, have you ever played basketball before? <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> we, what what would you do? What We yeah, want to know. <laughs> we We tried really hard. We promise. We tried really yeah, we, hard. We tried really hard. He's he's good. He's really good at basketball. No, that was fun. Cool. All good right. Deal. Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones tonight, man. <laughs> oh, I'm nervous about who's gonna die. But uh, we got two basketball games today and Game of Thrones. And Game of Thrones and um, Manchester United Chelsea here kicking off in a few minutes. So, uh, and the London Marathon this morning, Formula One in Azerbaijan. Gosh, well, nobody else cares, but I'm going to go watch Liège Best on Liège, the oldest cycling classic in the world as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> well that's a good place to end. All right, man. Well, thank you all for listening. Uh, give us a rating and review wherever you're listening to this. Please subscribe, and we'll be back next week with. Uh, Whatever's going on then. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks, man.